0: And it's a blessing to be here, it is. But I mean, legitimately, some of my most favorite people are a part of this family of faith. Uh, since about September, our church community has been journeying, uh, journeying through the book of Revelation. A uh, challenging, uh, daunting text in a lot of ways, uh, often misunderstood, and more often abused as we try to interpret and apply it, but it's something that we've found to be an incredibly encouraging, challenging, uh, but life-giving word for us as a church community. And so this morning on this Pentecost Sunday, I'm just going to share a little bit from our journey through the book of Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 4 today, and so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there with me. We're going to be there For our entire time. You can pull it up on an app if you have that. But Revelation chapter 4. And this is the vision that God gave to the Apostle John, who is in exile on Patmos, under the rule and reign of the Roman Empire, to give a word of encouragement, of exhortation, of challenge to endure. Uh, with perseverance and faithfulness to a poor and persecuted minority church under the boot of a powerful, world-conquering empire, a church that was tempted to compromise or despair. God gave this vision of the book of Revelation as a pastoral word to peel back the veil as he spoke to John to show them what was happening in ultimate reality, peeling back the veil on eternity itself to encourage them that I know life is rugged. I know it feels like you're getting a raw deal, church. I know you're confused because you, you're you claiming this Jesus as Lord, this one who has uh, supposedly conquered death itself, and yet here you are at the bottom of this other power, and you're, you're tempted to ask questions like, did we get this wrong? Do we mishear you? Are we following the wrong Savior here? And for John, God peels back the veil and says, this is what is happening in eternity in the cosmos. Be encouraged. And here in Revelation chapter 4, we see this vision. John records this of his vision. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The the first creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And by your will, they exist and were created. Let me pray for us as we dive into the word this morning. Lord Jesus, we confess it is a gift, it is grace that we can gather this morning as a family of faith, as this tribe of grace, as this movement in this city, which you claim sovereignty, rule, and reign over by your love. And we have the chance to open this Word by which you reveal yourself to us, that you do not intend or or purpose to remain a distant or uh, inscrutable deity, but you are a God who draws near, a God who reveals Himself, that you might be known and, and you might know us to lead us forward in your purposes and catch us up into the very fabric and story of eternity itself. So we pray this word would speak with power this morning that we would offer ourselves to it, that our ears would be receptive, that our hearts would be soft, that we leave here shaped evermore in your image and drawn ever further into your purposes, for your world. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. question to begin, who or what would you say is the center of your world, your life? If we can go existential for just a moment... In truth, the fabric of our universe, the very fabric of physical reality itself is built upon centers, centers of mass, centers of gravity, centers of energy, life as we know it, in fact, from the the galactic to the atomic scale is built on centers. And everything else, literally everything, finds itself and defines itself in relationship to them, our galaxy consists of something like a hundred billion stars, and it 's nearly one hundred and six thousand light years across and this galaxy swirls like a hurricane around its galactic center with an average velocity of Five hundred and fifteen thousand miles an hour, and our planet orbits its sun at about sixty seven thousand miles an hour. So if you're exhausted, you have permission to be moving, okay? But then the viability of Earth, of life on Earth depends dramatically on the precision of this orbit, and every object on Earth is possessed of its own center of gravity, and we are bound to this planet. association to its center. And in truth, the closer you get to that center of gravity, the more powerful the force will be. And then all the way down to the very atomic, where the fibers of physical reality itself, organic life, everything else are dependent on the relationship between infinitesimal particles, charged particles, and the way in which they relate to their nuclei their center, and the defining relational force of that existence. See, everything finds and is formed in relationship to a center from the universal down to the atomic. Everything and everyone is defined and directed by the center, that center which holds them in its orbit. The center that binds them to itself by its proximity and power. The force of that relationship. And so this is observably true in physics. We talk about gravity and charge and attraction and all these things. But I would argue that this reality and the power of centering is actually true relationally, emotionally, and spiritually as well. So we have to ask, what is your center? Who or what is it that defines and directs your life? What person, what thing, what relationship, what pursuit holds you in its orbit? What's your center? I mean, if if, Maybe folk music is more your jam than physics, right? Bob Dylan famously put it this way, like, you're going to serve somebody. You're going to serve somebody. What's your center? Each of our lives is defined dramatically by that which we place and find at the center. And it's not a question of if, but only what or whom. In Revelation chapter 4, this vision given to John by God, again, it peels back the door, the, the, the veil. It opens the doorway, as it were, and John is able to stand at like the threshold of eternity itself, this ultimate heavenly reality. And among the things that we are able to observe by virtue of this revelation is what or whom, according to Scripture, stands at the center of all things, of all things. We lay eyes, as it were, on eternity's core. It's defining, directing, relational center of gravity. And what John sees, he describes as a throne. A throne, the throne of a king the living, eternal, and victorious Christ. In the consuming activity, the economy of the reality around this throne can best and most simply be described as worship. Worship. Christ, the king, the center, and the proper response of everything else. Worship. Worship. And so, worship is profoundly significant in the life of the follower of Jesus because it is in worship that we both discover and declare that the center of life, all of life, as well as our own lives, is Christ, the King, the King. Again to the text, uh, after this I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven And the first voice, which I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I'll show you what what must take place. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on it. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones and 24 elders in white garments with golden crowns. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So I want to name, as we look at this, this vision of John that God gives him of eternity, we want to notice that what is at the center is not a nameless, faceless force. This is not a doorway into simple self-awareness or self-actualization, but what is at the center of all things is, in fact, a throne, a king, and so at the center of reality, there sits a creating, sustaining, governing authority before which every other conceivable power and authority will bow in deference and submission. At the white-hot, burning center of heaven itself, we find a king, the king. And this is critically important to Christian theology and thinking, that according to Scripture, our hope and aim is not personal satisfaction. It is not enlightenment or moral achievement. This is not a practical guide to a happier, healthier, more righteous living. This story and our aim, our hope, is in a king and a kingdom. And as followers of Jesus, we declare and demonstrate ourselves to be the people of this king. This king. Some other observations we make around this throne about this king that we send and find at the center of all things. We notice that this king has overwhelming, unquestionable authority unquestionable authority, but this king is enthroned not by violence or despotic exercise of power, but enthroned upon the very promises and covenant faithfulness and love of God. We see this throne that John observes as the centerpiece of heaven encircled by a rainbow, which is an allusion to God's covenant promises to Noah and his people. And we find that this throne is not solitary, but is surrounded by 24 other thrones and 24 crowned elders. And a reasonable interpretation of this number 24 is that it's representative of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples or apostles of Christ, together symbolizing the totality of God's covenant people throughout all time. It is this eternal, unfaltering faithfulness of God that constitutes the gravitational force of his authority. And in this throne we find a God, one who sits, who while the unquestionable center and authority over all creation yet manages to remain generously unselfish interested. This is a king who spreads and shares his glory, a king who rejoices, who is not threatened to be surrounded by power and glory and beauty distinct from himself. Again, we have a throne surrounded by thrones, a God surrounded by these godlike, incredible creatures. But what grace what mind-blowing inconceivable grace that humanity humanity is present enthroned in the very throne room of heaven and the church is represented as standing ever before the throne this this picture is seven Lamps with seven lights, the seven spirits of God, representative of the seven churches of Revelation. The church there in the very throne room of heaven, ever in the line of sight of this God and possessing his faithful concern. I mean, the church. What a hot mess the church is, right? <laughs> To what do we owe this dignity? To what do we owe this honor? The God, the creator, the sustainer, and king of all creation would spend his days with his eyes upon us. Only grace. It's grace. And we ask, why is this throne, this king imagery, so poignant for John and for the early church. We remember the context. This is a vision and letters given to a persecuted minority church under the boot of a powerful military empire. And their daily reality was defined by the fact that Caesar is king, Caesar is Lord, by the reality of Rome and the violence of the Roman peace. Peace. And Caesar's throne is the center of all meaningful power and authority in their world, seeking to bend these early followers of Jesus into compliance with the ways and the worship of Rome. There are 14 references to throne or thrones in this chapter. We have to understand that this is not a subtle point that John is making. At the center of reality, at the center of eternity, at the center of our hopes, we find a king, and it isn't Caesar. It isn't Caesar. It isn't our nationalistic hopes. In our world, perhaps, it's important to note that it isn't ourselves. It's not Caesar. Caesar. But it's Jesus, at the center of all things, we find the true King, the slain yet living Lamb, Christ, Jesus. And we worship. In worship, we discover and declare the center of life is the King, Jesus. Beyond the throne, what else do we find? We find a song. To the text again, around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures. And the living creatures, day and night, never cease to say, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down. Before him who is seated on the throne and worship him, they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. At the center of all things, we find a throne and we find a song. A song. You see, in the end, the only proper response to finding yourself in the unveiled presence of this God, this King, is worship. Worship. In the economy of heaven, life is worship, and worship is life. And every moment and every activity is centered upon Christ. The eternal and eternal life becomes just an ongoing refrain of God's perfect holiness. Holy, 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 perfectly, three times holy, entirely powerful, eternally existent. Holy, holy, holy are you, the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And we notice these creatures, these these incredible creatures around the throne, and what, are they, what do they mean? What are they symbolic of? Are they indicative of the entire created or animal order? I, I don't know. Are they, are they symbi- symbolic of all earthly power and glory? Perhaps. Are they, are they symbolic of, uh, of empires as they were for the prophet Daniel? I, I'm not entirely certain. But what we do know is they all bow down in a worship to Jesus these fantastic otherworldly creatures that if you and I were to run into any one of them, we would be tempted to worship. We would be tempted to conclude, is this, is this a God? All these creatures are in fact merely worship leaders in the community that stands before the one true God. The Lamb who was slain. And altogether, we find that the life of heaven is, it seems, just a never-ending song of praise, joyfully and powerfully compelled by the force of the king's simple presence in their midst. And all of creation declares the goodness and glory of this king. And we notice this, that all the elders around the throne, when they worship, they cast their crowns before him. But we can ask, where did they get these crowns? What is the basis of this authority and glory that, that they now see fit to surrender to Christ? Well, if we go back to Revelation 2 and 3, we find that crowns and robes and thrones, that these are the gifts with which Christ has rewarded those who faithfully endure, you see. And so in worship, we find that the people of God are joyfully giving back to God those very gifts and glory and honor that He has just given them for their endurance and faithfulness. And worship of this sort invites us literally into the very in eternal life, what theologians would describe as the perichoresis, the dance of God himself, this eternal community of self-giving love. Where the Father conveys love to the Son, and the Son conveys love to the Father, all by virtue and means of the Holy Spirit. This God tripping over Himself to give glory and honor and praise to the other. And in worship, we are invited into that very life of eternity itself as we give glory and honor and praise back emptying ourselves of the very gifts that God has poured out on us in His honor. See, worship, we discover and declare that the center of life is Christ, the Lord, the King. And altogether, I think what we witness in John's vision is a representation of life itself, revealed, unveiled, that if we could take a peek under the hood of existence, I think this is what we would find. From the throne, he writes, came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. And the people fall down, as it were, before him who is seated on the throne and worship him. They cast their crowns, saying, Worthy are you to receive honor and praise and glory, all things. And we notice that the scene around the throne is not serene. It's not serene. It, it's not zen at all, right? That, that it's a storm, a storm of living holiness. You know, in in our exhaustion, I think in our exhaustion with the world, with our own brokenness, with just daily life, I think often, if I can speak for others, I think we often long for stasis. We just long to arrive, to be static, to be stable, to stop moving, that that would be rest, that would be a gift that I long for. And yet, what we find in Christ, that this is not what heaven offers. we find in Christ is an electrical storm of never-ending, constantly unfolding life an ecstasy of constant climax and outpouring in worship. Heaven is a hurricane of unbridled, never-ending life, and the throne of Christ is the eye of the storm. Jesus, the center. And here on Pentecost, we we mark the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This medium, this power, the, the currency of the life of God itself, the Holy Spirit unleashed upon the earth now. And it's through conscious dependence upon this Holy Spirit and through the discipline of a life shaped by prayer that we are invited to participate in this ultimate reality. We are invited to pull back the veil, to have our lives fixated by this vision of eternity such that we become a peculiar people marked by power, citizens and outposts of heaven shaped through prayer by the love and life of Jesus himself in all eternity with him, that under our very feet, heaven itself would touch down, that the world would be marked by the love and the life and the just the, the eternity itself, the love and life of God, that heaven would mark our footsteps. If we can bring it home, there There are all kinds of things, and mostly good things, that will tempt us to place them at the center of our lives. But in the end, only Jesus can center and sustain us. This is the nature of idolatry, is to make any good thing an ultimate thing, thereby displacing Christ from his rightful place. There have been plenty of times in my life And the constant temptation where I have attempted to live with things other than Jesus as my center. I mean, a a romantic relationship, a career goal, just myself, my dreams. You You know, for parents... Our children and the task of raising them easily becomes the thing that we orbit our whole selves around. You know, family is everything, right, they say. But in the end, all of these things will leave us undone, uncentered, and destructively so if we allow them, if we force them or ask them to be the center. Because no person, no pursuit, no passion, no relationship, no appetite can bear the force of sustaining our lives, our flourishing, other than Jesus. Jesus. Jesus says to his disciples he says seek first the kingdom and all these things shall be added worship the discipline and life and practice of worship is an act of recentering our lives on Christ. Worship is the very atmosphere and life of heaven itself. Worship is to live our whole lives with our eyes fixed on the throne, caught up in the life-giving joy of freely surrendering to God every good thing that He has given to us and doing so as praise. Worship is the antidote to our idolatry, you see. In worship, we discover and we declare that the center of all life, the life of eternity, the life of creation in our own lives, is truly and rightfully only Christ, the King. We say thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess the fragility with which we hold on to this great truth. How easily we find other things, even good things, even gifts that you have given us, and allowed them to push you from the center of our lives. We confess that. We repent in our desire, Lord Jesus, to seek first you and your kingdom, such that we might know life and that abundantly, that eternity itself would touch the ground beneath the soles of our feet. We give you thanks and praise, Lord Jesus, that by your grace, you will accomplish this. Teach us to surrender ourselves. Teach us to submit joyfully to life for your glory and your praise and the purposes of your kingdom, that we might have joy. We pray this in the great and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.